morning, Bethel. And it is Super Bowl Sunday. Big, uh, big Sunday for our American culture. The most watched TV event of the year is happening tonight. Now, for some of you who are movie aficionados, how many in, in here love watching movies? Anybody in here love watching? What about movies from the 80s? Any movies from the 80s? Oh, I got some big hands there. All right. So you movies from the uh, people that love movies from the 80s. Go ahead, Calvin. What's, what's this? What do you guys think this is? There we go. It's, it's the infamous flux capacitor that allowed Michael J. Fox to travel backwards and forwards in time in 1985 in the Back to the Future movie series. You know, if you stumbled onto an actual one of these in our time today that could actually let you go backwards and forwards in time, let's just hypothetically say that for just a moment, what year would you choose to go back to? Let me ask you that question. You ever thought about that? What year, if you could go backwards in time, what year would you go back to? You know, I think I might choose the year 2000. That was the year that my wife Rachel fell hopelessly in love with me and commenced her desperate quest of trying to lock me down. (laughs) Those are some fun times. You guys can tell her that after the service. You know, I'd love to relive some of those incredible moments. Those were fun times. But back in the year 2000, if you could go back to the year 2000 with $10,000 in your pocket, what would you buy? Sean has, must have been reading my notes. Apple stock in the year 2000 was 69 cents a share. And now it's hovering around $140 a share. Just imagine how rich you would be if you bought some Apple stock. Some of you might say, you know what, I'm going to go buy some land off Narcusi. The year 2000, Narcusi Road was a little two-lane road with nothing but cows on either side, and you could probably buy several acres for $10,000 that would be worth millions now. Today in Luke 18, you're going to see a guy walk away from even a greater opportunity. And you're going to find yourself screaming at him, don't you realize, don't you realize what you are walking away from. What Luke is going to show us is that following Jesus is not just adding a little religion to your life. It's not just making a few moral tweaks. It means turning your back on everything that you find security in in life and to put your lot entirely with Jesus. Jesus, we're going to see, offers us an inheritance that is far more valuable than Apple stock. The question is, do you believe him? Do you believe him and will you do whatever it takes to follow him and get in the game? That is the question this morning. So here we go in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it says, translates ruler some. Translation will say the rich young ruler is the way that they will translate this. And we, we all know the answer here, right? 
We're waiting for Jesus to say, trust in me as your Savior. Or say, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. But Jesus doesn't say that. Why? Because he can read the hearts of men and women. And to help him learn some things about himself, Jesus is going to take this conversation in a little different direction. Let's read verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let me pause there for just a moment and to, to kind of dissect Jesus' statement here because it has troubled some people because it sounds like Jesus is saying he's not really God, and that's not true. It's as if he's saying, why are you calling me good? There's no one who is good except God, and that's not me, and you shouldn't call me that. But that is not what Jesus is saying. I mean, first, if there's one verdict that the, the New Testament consistently gives about Jesus is that he is good. If, the, if it's true that there is only one who is good, and that is God, then Jesus, Scripture is clear, that is him. But more importantly, Jesus is challenging this guy's, this rich, rich young ruler's view, superficial view of goodness. This guy thinks he's a good guy. He thinks he's good. And Jesus says, do you really think you're good enough for God? This guy doesn't pick up what Jesus is putting down, so Jesus presses the point just a little bit harder. He says in verse 20, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. These are kind of the universal standards for goodness, the Ten Commandments. The Bible is is conformity to the Ten Commandments is kind of looked at as the universal standard of goodness. And that should have been enough for this rich young ruler to give him some serious pause and think for just a moment. Just consider the ones that Jesus just named, these commandments. He didn't name all of them, but he named a few of them here. Do not commit adultery. And you might be sitting in here and say, you know, I've never done that. I mean, lots of men are faithful to their wives, but not so fast. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught that fantasizing about sex with someone else that you were not married to was like breaking this commandment because it's the desire of your heart that counts with God. If outwardly I conform my behavior while inwardly I yearn to break this commandment, God sees the heart. It would be like kind of like if my wife saw me outwardly, I was a dutiful husband while inwardly I was in love with another woman, that would not be pleasing to her. It actually would hurt her. It would crush her. That would not be pleasing. And in the same way with the commandments, Jesus says, just because you've never had the courage or the opportunity to outwardly break this commandment, to act on your sexual desires, doesn't mean that those desires do not surge within you. What's another one he said here? Do not murder. The same deal. I would think that there would be everyone in here that would say in this auditorium, I have not committed this act outwardly. But Jesus taught that in God's eyes, hating someone 
or wishing harm upon someone is the spirit of murder. A truly good person would never desire harm upon someone else. And if you've ever been so angry at someone that you've wanted to harm them, in that same way you've possessed the spirit of murder. He says, do not bear false witness is another one he says to him. You can say, all of my life, in every situation, I've always told the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. I've never bent the truth to get out of a bad situation, never stretched the truth to make myself look better, never slightly distorted the truth to slander someone I didn't like. Anybody in here that can honestly say that? They've never, ever, ever done that? It's another one that we are all guilty of. Another one he says here is honor your father and mother. And this command is really about submission to authorities. Even if we just took the father and mother aspect, I think everyone in here at some point in your childhood pushed back and dishonored your parents. Did something contrary to what they asked you to do, but it's greater than that. It first occurs with our parents, but later on it includes anyone who God puts in authority over us. Teachers, law enforcement, our coaches, our bosses. Can you say I've always had a humble and submissive posture to whatever rightful authorities were in my life? I've always obeyed joyfully and never complained about them behind their backs. <laughs> we know that's not true. And at this point, in the story, any honest person would realize they're in trouble. They're in trouble. But this guy says in verse 21, he says, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now you got to admit, this takes some real guts to say this to Jesus. I'm clean as a whistle, Jesus. You guys are starting to see the problem with this ruler. He has no concept of how not good he is. He has no idea how insufficient his goodness is to obtain God's favor. So having now twice to help this guy see the depravity of his heart to no avail, Jesus is going to make one more attempt. I'm going to try one more time for this guy to see this. So verse 22 when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Some of you, when reading that, you're like, Whoa, is that actually a requirement for becoming a disciple of Jesus? Do we have to sell everything that we have? And give it away? No. Jesus is trying to make a point to this guy that I'm going to draw out for you here in just a moment. But let's finish reading on the rest of this passage. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? We'll come back to that in a second, why they asked that question. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible 
with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You see, Jesus' main goal in this conversation is to drive this guy to the point of despair so he'd quit looking to his own goodness, his own goodness for salvation, and look to Christ for salvation. You see, the first thing is here is this way of salvation. How are we looking for our salvation? Are we putting our faith in our goodness? Because you see, our goodness will never stack up. Our goodness will never be enough, which is why Jesus makes that very confusing statement in verse 25. He says, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this kind of statement that the, the, the Bible scholars, they love to obsess over and write pages and pages in the commentary trying to explain. And some have this really ingenious interpretation. They say the eye of a needle was the nickname of a small after-hours gate in the wall of Jerusalem. And the only way a camel to go through it was by getting down on their knees a picture of what Jesus was telling this guy he must do here, which is an ingenious interpretation. But I think the explanation is much simpler. Jesus is, is just using hyperbole here, which he often did when he taught. You know, the camel was the largest animal that they were really familiar with in this society. And the eye of the needle was about the tiniest thing they were familiar with. And Jesus was using hyperbole to drive a point home. It'd be like us saying something like, there's not a snowball's chance in hell. That's kind of what Jesus was, was saying here. Does he mean that, you know, that, that rich people only have a snowball chance in hell of going to heaven? And none of them are going to make it? He couldn't have meant that. I mean, lots of rich people in the Bible went to heaven. Some of the most godly people in the Bible were some of the richest. Abraham was rich. King David was rich. Joseph was rich. Job was rich. In the New Testament, we see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were both rich. Several of the leading Christians referred to in the book of Acts were some of the richest people in town and astoundingly rich. So clearly, a lot of rich people go to heaven. So why did Jesus say it like this? Why did he record it in scripture like this? Well, to really get a meaning here, you have to understand how his audience, how the original hearers of this story viewed rich people. It's the opposite of how many of us view rich people today. Today, we're conditioned to see rich people somewhat as inherently immoral, people who stepped over people to get their wealth, if someone is rich, we tend to assume it probably because they or their family exploited someone or exploited the system. Or now they have money because they're spoiled in generational wealth and they're, 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 they're proud and greedy and we just, some, in our culture today, we kind of look down upon rich people. But Jesus' original audience thought differently. They thought of riches as a sign of God's blessing. You see, they were steeped in the book of Proverbs, which says that a wise man 
is usually a wealthy man. That wealth is often a sign of God's favor in Proverbs 10. The wealthy get wealthy, Proverbs 23 says, in part because they control their appetites. They work hard, they invest, they save, they don't give themselves to alcohol, they don't throw away money foolishly, they don't lay in bed all day, Proverbs 12, and they choose friends wisely. In Proverbs, wealth wasn't so much a sign of inherent immorality, but it was a sign of wisdom. Which is why when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the knife of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven, they respond in verse 26 by saying, then who can be saved? Because they looked at rich people as people who were wise, who were godly. That's how they got that wealth. They're saying, well, if rich people can't get it, then who can get it, Jesus? Who is going to obtain eternal life? They don't say, of course, the greedy capitalists are going down. Stick it to the man. Instead, they say with genuine bewilderment, if righteous people, the ones blessed by God with wealth, if they can't be saved, God, then who can be saved? They're, they're, they're truly confounded with this story. They do not get it, which is why Jesus answered in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation, he says, comes differently. It's not a reward for righteousness. It's not a reward. Salvation is not a reward for your goodness. You can never be wise enough. You can never be good enough. You can never be righteous enough or blessed enough to earn eternal life with God. Salvation is a gift that he alone gives to us. And he gives it to those who admit that they are hopeless without it. A gift to those who recognize that God, but that before God, they are as poor as the most destitute beggar to ever walk the face of the earth. To them and them only, God gives the righteousness of Christ. God only saves bad people because that's the only kind of people there truly are. When we look at the sin in our own heart and compare it against the Ten Commandments, every single person in here has broken every commandment in their heart. There's no good people. We're all bad. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Salvation is a gift for those who recognize that, to those who attempt no claim on eternal life. I love the children's book written by Sally Lloyd-Jones that says, to get Jesus, all you need is need, and need is the only thing this rich young ruler didn't have. So we see this way of salvation. And his particular problem that we're going to see here is his money. Not only did Jesus overturn the idea that someone can be good enough to be accepted by God, he challenged their worldview even further. He said that riches actually hinder our ability to enter the kingdom of God. Why did he say that? Now, real quick, before I go any further, I know many of you are, are sitting here and saying, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. I am not rich. In America, the truth is no one thinks that they are rich whatever you sit wherever you sit on the socioeconomic scale rich people are always the ones that are the next class of people right above you 
That's how we view the rich people. But newsflash, we, everyone in here knows where their next meal is coming from. We all do. Historically and globally, that puts you in the category of the rich. The fact that you will not worry probably the rest of this week where your next meal is going to come from. We have more conveniences, more disposable income, and more flexibility than 99% of the people Jesus talked to ever dreamed of having. In this day and time, they had no AC, no running water, no electricity. Most had never traveled more than 60 miles away from their homes. And so when Jesus says this, we today, we say, I'm not rich. Monetarily, we are a very, very rich people. Another thing is money is not the only thing that can make you rich in. You might be rich in appearance, rich in talent, rich in potential, rich in reputation, rich on your resume and your family identity, anything that makes you feel secure and competent as you look out toward your future that you can be also rich in. So here's why Jesus says that money is a spiritual liability. Money is a form of power that quickly supplants our sense of need for God. Money offers you control. When you have money, you can do things. You can get things done you want done in the world even when others don't want it to happen. It's like the great philosopher Chris Rock said, wealth is not about having a lot of money, it's about having a lot of options. It's actually a great quote. Money promises you security. It tells you that there's no tragedy tomorrow can't bring that you cannot handle. The proof is right here on your balance sheet. You can look at it. Because money offers you all kinds of power. People start to love it. And when they do, they lose their love for God. Which is why he says in Luke 16, 13, You cannot serve God and money. You will love the one and hate the other. He didn't say that about Caesar. He didn't say you cannot serve God and Caesar. In fact, he said just the opposite. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and unto God what is God, which means serve Caesar appropriately. Money is the only thing that he made this comment about. Caesar was a bad dude. He was immoral, violent, anti-God, and yet Jesus never said you can't love God and Caesar. Why did he say that about money and money alone? Because money offers you a form of power that is so seductive that the moment you start loving and delighting in it, you stop loving and delighting in God. The famous author, British author G.K. Chesterton said that one of the clearest themes in the teaching of Jesus is that rich people are in big trouble. Which leads us to number three. The essential question of all of this is lordship. What is Lord over your life? Verse 22. He says, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And we wonder, is this some kind of extra salvation requirement that we have to do to be a Christian? It sure sounds like that's what Jesus is saying. Is that what we need to do, sell all that we have to become a follower of Christ? Short answer is no. The key to interpreting what Jesus said is to notice what he said first in this passage. 
he said, one thing you lack. But then he gives him, tells him three things to that one. Go ahead and put that verse back up there. He says, sell your possessions, that's one. Give to the poor and follow me. He says, one thing you lack, but he tells him three things there. It's really, but it's really just one thing. The one thing that he lacks, which is all combined in all of these, is Jesus. But to get to him, you have to open your hands on anything else that controls you. For this man, it was his money. He couldn't reach out and take the hand of Jesus because he was consumed with his wealth. And to reach out and take Jesus' hands, he'd have to let his wealth, his money, slip through his fingers, which he did not want to do. Money may or may not be that thing for you. The one thing is whatever we're afraid to turn over in control, that is in control of our lives, over to Jesus and taking his hand in surrender. Imagine that you and I were on a sinking ship and we needed to evacuate. The next closest ship was hours away and the captain is handing out life preservers for us to float out in the sea for several hours before we are rescued. And as the captain starts passing out life preservers, he tells you, you can't take anything because the life preserver will not keep you above the water if you're holding on to anything. And the guy right next to you was on the ship with bags of gold. And the captain says, you have to leave the gold to take the life preserver. The guy on the other side of you has books of research from his doctoral dissertation. The captain says, you can't take it. You've got, if you're going to take this life preserver, you've got to let this go. Maybe the third guy has his collectibles. Maybe it's a lot of baseball cards or Star Wars paraphernalia that he's hanging on to. And the captain says, you can't hang on to it. It's either the life preserver or this. If you want to survive, you've got to put your hands, put off your hands on anything that keeps you from hanging on to this. The point is not what you have to let go of. The point is what keeps you from clinging on to the life preserver. That's the point. What is it in your life that is preventing you from hanging on to Jesus? Maybe it's a habit that you don't want to quit. Or maybe it's a relationship that you don't want to give up. Maybe it's Jesus' demand to, to turn over control of your future that you don't want to let go of. So again, I ask, what is the one thing that keeps you from fully surrendering your life to Jesus? For some of the younger generation, especially college students, it's their sexual freedom. Jesus calls us to a higher sexual ethic, and they don't want to turn that over. As you get later in life, is Jesus also Lord of your money? To this guy, Jesus says, one thing you lack if you want to inherit eternal life is to open your hands and follow me. We're going to see last of all the value of Jesus. And I think this is the hardest part of the story 
for me as seeing this man walk away from Jesus. The Gospel of Mark's account makes clear that Jesus loved this rich young ruler and he was brokenhearted when he walked away. When you read this story, you just want to look at him and shout and say, don't you realize what you're walking away from? What are you doing? You have the Son of God who created the universe, the one who will judge the living and the dead, the one who loves you so much that in a few short days he will lay down his life on a cross for you, standing in front of you, arms outstretched, saying, follow me. And he walks away. But the truth is, that is some of you this morning. Jesus is making that same statement to you. Where do you find your security? What are you holding on to for your goodness? That Jesus is saying, let it go and follow me. Think about what he walked away from. You see, here's the tragic thing. One day, the rich young ruler will become uh, the rich old ruler. He watched in the mirror as his beauty faded At some point, his mental strength began to slip. I'm sure his influence waned. His command of the room diminished. People no longer cared that much about his opinion. And then one day, he died. The rich young ruler was neither rich, young, nor in charge of anything. And what did he have then? Friends, it's all going back in the box. And what you do... When all that happens, what's going to happen? At the beginning, I asked you what you would do if you could go back in time to the year 2000 with $10,000. I think most of the world would say, I'd invest in that Apple stock. Almost all of us will look at something of how we can make more money, even though it meant doing without some of the toys maybe that you would have had in the year 2000. Maybe, you know, if your younger self would say, I'm going to buy that nice car. Maybe it's doing without that. And you would do that happily because you know what is coming. You know what Apple is going to do with the iPad and the iPhone and the iBook. You know that you can do without for a short period of time because you know that that Apple stock is going to make you wealthy beyond your dreams. Friend, we know what is coming. We know. If Jesus rose from the dead, which we know that he did, we know that he's coming back again. You know the only life to live will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Why would you hold on to anything keeping you from Jesus? Why hold on to something that will soon have no value if it means giving up the only thing in the future that will have infinite value? Why would you hold on to that? The famous missionary Jim Elliott, who died as a martyr trying to reach the Aka Indians in Ecuador, famously said, He is no fool who gives 
what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Riches you can never keep. Jesus and an eternal inheritance that you can never lose. What are you holding on to that is keeping you from Jesus? Jesus stands here to you saying, let all that you're clinging to go and follow me. Don't cling to the things that you can never hold on to anyways. Release it. Is Jesus worthy of your trust? You know, when you think about it, in the story, there's really two rich young rulers. There's this guy, and then there's Jesus. Jesus was also young, around 32, 33 years old at this point. And he was rich beyond anyone's imagination. Even though he did not have a coin to his name, nothing more than the clothes on his back when he walked this earth. He was the son of heaven, the king of the universe. Yet Jesus turned his back on all of that for us. If he did that for us, why would you not release what you're holding on to to trust him let's pray